Hello and welcome to Power of the Pitch, a special podcast of the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. My name is Dave Brundle, and I'm your host for this series, which has been designed and produced by the International Hub on Behavioural Insights to Counterterrorism, inspired by the experience and reflecting the work of the multi-year global program on security of major sporting events and the promotion of sport and its values as a tool to prevent violent extremism that the UN Office of Counterterrorism delivers in partnership with the UN Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute, the UN Alliance of Civilization, and the International Center for Sports Security. For this series, we will examine how behavioral insights are being applied to sports and when addressing violent extremism factors that may conduce to terrorism. In this series, we will introduce you to programs aiming to prevent violent extremism through sports and its values, and share the personal stories from world-renowned athletes and advocates of female empowerment and inclusivity. We will discuss the powerful role of sports diplomacy and take a close look at the innovative policies and practices being used by governments and organizations to ensure that sport remains a safe pastime and profession for future generations. In this exclusive series, we will be joined by behavioral and violent extremism experts, as well as by sports professionals who will talk about their experiences and share their knowledge. In this episode, we're speaking with Professor Andrew Silk, who is recognized as a leading expert on terrorism and low-intensity conflict. Professor Silk has worked with a variety of government departments and law enforcement and security agencies. In the UK, these include the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Defence, as well as several UK police forces. Overseas, he has worked with the UN, the US Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, NATO, and the European Defence Agency, just to name a few. Professor Silk joins us to talk about security measures and threat analysis of major entertainment and sporting events. And driving the conversation is Ken Reedy, who is the Research and Best Practices Lead at the UNOCT's Behavioural Insights Hub. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Andrew, we're based in Doha, and at the time of recording, we're a few weeks away from the quadrennial extravaganza that is the World Cup. And what we wanted to do was use this occasion to explore the role that sports, writ large, plays in terrorism. And about 10 years ago, you edited a book with Anthony Richards and Peter Fussey titled Terrorism and the Olympics, Major Event Security and Lessons for the Future. And its release coincided with the London Olympics in 2012. And it's the targeting and securing of sports venues, which I'd love to talk with you about today. So to get us started, could you give us the a brief history of terrorists attacking high-profile events like the Olympics or the World Cup? I mean, there's a long history of terrorism going after major sporting venues. The Olympics in particular has been a very high-profile target. And at the time that we pulled that book together, we're all based at Stratford in East London. And literally uh, from our offices, we could see the Olympic site being built. And we all had um, research specialism in terrorism and a strong focus in it. And so we were very conscious of potential terrorist risks to the Olympics. Yeah. Um, and literally, as I was on our doorstep, we were um, 
we were wondering what were the lessons from past Olympics that, that could be taken from this and, and, and thinking about it in terms of threat and in terms of mitigation. And one of the things from that piece of work was that, you know, we, we quickly found out that every Olympics pretty much during the course of the, you know, the previous hundred years had been targeted by some terrorist group, mm. um, regardless of where they were located. Uh, didn't seem to matter which country they were in. All of them were targeted by somebody. Um, and some attacks were were particularly serious. I mean, uh, Munich 72 stands out as, as, as yeah. not only a, a bad attack against sport, but one of the um, the most important, most serious terrorist attacks of the past century. Yeah. One of the things when we were looking at this is, one, why would you target a major sporting venue yeah. if you're a terrorist group? It's meant to be a recreational leisure activities, mm. uh, a time for celebration, a, ch- a, a time for people to enjoy themselves. So what was the appeal? And there were a couple of things which were pulling terrorists in. Well, number one, most of the time, the terrorists did not really care about the sport one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, they weren't hostile necessarily to whether it was football or, or a particular event or athletics or whatever it happened to be. Yeah. But what they did want to do was to target the the government either in, in, in the sense of the government that was hosting the event mm. or the, um, the athletes and who they represented and the countries that they represented. And those were the primary targets. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that you had massive media presence at these types of events then was a, an enormous bonus yeah. and also a big draw. Because if you were a terrorist group, uh, one of the key things you're looking to achieve in an attack is media attention. Yeah. And if you carry it out at a venue like the Olympics or like the the World Cup or, or, or anything similar to that, you're guaranteed media attention. So for, for a lot of terrorist groups, these venues, these events, they tick a lot of boxes and, and, and it looks very, very attractive. Now, I think one additional element in recent decades is the potential for a mass casualty attack. Mm-hmm. For example, Black September, when they carried out the attack against the, the Munich Olympic Games, yeah. they weren't interested in killing scores or, or hundreds of people. That, w- that wasn't what it was about for them. But when we skip forward to the current era, now we have groups who are interested yeah. in mass casualties. And, and, and again, a sporting venue offers you, you know, uh, an attractive target in that regard. So it's, it's, it's for these reasons that these events and these venues tend to be selected and tend to be targeted. I had no idea that every single Olympics was targeted. Oh, pr- pretty much. Yeah, pretty much every one. Now, the standout attacks tend to be ones like Atlanta yeah. and um, Munich. I mean, the London 2012 games, the, the, the security round, that was really good. But there had been um, uh, people arrested prior to carrying out the attacks and were in jail at the time that the, the games happened who had been talking about hitting it. They weren't able to get the plots off the ground, but if, if, if they'd had the capability, they absolutely would have been um, on for, um, for uh, carrying out an attack against the games. I can't even imagine the the scope of activities and contingencies which go into securing huge events like the Olympics or the World Cup. Could you give us a sense of the scale of these preparations? These days, it's enormous. Um, And I I think the reason for that is it's widely recognized now that these type of events and venues are a target and are a a serious target for a range of different terrorist groups. Uh, I mean... To a degree, we um, Munich is you know was the watershed moment yeah. because that that was an attack which actually had been forecast and and some of the risk assessments before the, the uh, games had flagged 
a Palestinian terrorist attack yeah. against the Israelis as, as being um, one of the scenarios that should be prepared for. And it was dismissed beforehand as being an unrealistic threat scenario. Oh, wow. But since then, um, security has been front and center. Yeah. And it's received far more attention, far more resources. The cost is enormous. Yeah. Um, at the 2012 games, over a billion pounds was spent on security alone. Oh. Um, potentially, potentially much more, depending on the figures that you look at. But that's the, that's the the level you're operating at for any major international event like a World Cup, like the Olympics. It absolutely has to be up there. And I think, particularly yeah. when you um, when it's taking place in a more um, vulnerable, might be the right word volatile neighbors, shall we say, uh, part of the world, then then that just emphasizes it even more. Since writing the book uh, 10 years ago, how has the threat landscape changed with specific reference to sporting venues? Well, uh, I mean, one of the big attacks that's happened since writing the book would be the the Paris attacks uh, uh, when you had the Bacalan attack, but you also had a, a serious attempt to get into the uh, Stade de France yeah. and um, uh, while a football match was ongoing. And I think there, there are a couple of elements from that attack where you had um, determined suicide bombers um, yeah. and also individuals armed with firearms. Um, the, the security there deterred them effectively. They weren't mm-hmm. able to get inside the yeah. venue, which is, which is what they wanted to achieve. And the bombs, when they detonated as a result, didn't cause anywhere near the yeah. casualties and damage that they had been hoping to. But, you know, the match was live. It was on TV and yeah. you could hear the, the, the sound of the explosions um, yeah. uh, while it was taking place and still got attention. And then you get the, the follow-up attacks taking place at other locations in Paris where most of the people were killed and, and very, mm-hmm. high, very high numbers. And for me, that type of an attack tells us two things about when you're targeting sports venues today, um, in particularly major venues, is that usually these are locations which take their security seriously. Um, they have invested in it. They have um, um, put measures in place. And as a result, they are much harder targets to to hit, if you want, then, for example, some of the uh, very soft targets that contemporary terrorists can, can, can favor, such as nightclubs, restaurants, yeah. shopping centers, these types of locations. And I think, to, to a degree, that's good news if you're mm. looking in terms of the, the security around the World Cup. Like in the London Olympics, um, the security there was absolutely amazing. And like you said, they spent a billion pounds or more. Um, but then, you know, it was only a number of years later, I think it was five years later, you had the Ariana Grande attack in the Manchester Arena. Now, it wasn't a sporting event, but it was in a sporting facility. What happened there? Like, that, where you'd go from having such a secure Olympics to then having that attack happen. What, in, in your assessment, went on there? Well, I think one of the big reasons for that difference was the, the, the planners always knew the London Olympics would be a major terrorist target. Yeah, okay. So literally from day one, at that time, um, the UK, it had been a few years after the, the uh, 2005 uh, subway attacks. Yeah. There had been a number of other plots in the yeah. UK. And I think the difference between what happened then in Ma- uh, the Manchester Arena attack is that the risk of terrorism simply wasn't yeah. um, as prominent in the planning. And I think this is one of the, the things that's emerged from the um, uh, reviews into what happened there um, is, is, is that... They didn't take the threat of a terrorist attack seriously enough. And in the UK today, there's currently a big push to introduce what's known as the protect duty. And this is w- would put much more responsibility on venues like the Manchester Arena yeah. and others to really have a strong anti-terrorist um, planning uh, dimension for, for big events like this. Yeah, yeah. So it'd be sort of any big event. It could be music. It could be 
art shows even maybe. I think anywhere where there's big media attention, you would then have to have all those risk assessments and contingencies in place. Well, not just if there was media attention, they're looking at it in terms of simply if it's an event that's likely to attract a crowd, large group of people, a kind of a, a local concert, some other event. But if you're expecting people to turn up in, oh, in relatively, yeah. relatively large numbers, uh, then you need to have some sort of protect planning in place and consideration to, to have taken place in, in relation to it. I think that the hope is that if you make this a, a requirement, then some of the, the failings that were identified in terms of the Manchester arena uh, won't happen or are less likely to happen. I would imagine that um, technology plays a really substantial role now, far more than it did 10 years ago. And I'm sure in many instances, uh, technology um, complements the human elements of security. But has it in any way replaced it? For me, one of the, the really good examples to look is what we experience at airports. Mm-hmm. And so we what, one of the most effective counterterrorism policies of the past 50 years was the introduction of metal detectors at, at yeah. international airports. Literally overnight following the introduction of, of metal detectors, hijackings and skyjackings disappear. Yeah. It went from being a constant high profile problem to suddenly disappearing from the landscape. Such instances are incredibly rare. The airport security evolution, I think, is a good example of how uh, large venue security has also improved because mm. what you have there is that you do have technology. Yeah. So you have metal detectors, we have body scanners, we have CCTV um, systems in place, we have license recognition technology being used, but you also have a human element to back it up. And that human element will include security staff. It may include staff who have been trained to try and detect threats or uh, de- detect suspicious behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also have um, you know various levels of responders as well. I think from my point of view, that type of multi-layered holistic approach that we see now and take for granted at airports is in, in, in many similar respects, what we see also at major sporting venues. Yeah. Some of what we see is very um, front of house. So security staff in uniform, very visible. Yeah. And then some of it is much more discreet. And plus the other thing to, to bear in mind is that the let's say, lower priority events than a World Cup or an Olympics, mm-hmm. you're, you're still going to have significant um, interaction and cooperation with law enforcement yeah. and various agencies like that. For something as serious as, as a World Cup, you're going to have also you know, intelligence agencies yeah. becoming involved in it as well. The subtitle of your book was Lessons for the Future. And that was 10 years ago. So you know where I'm going with this question. Uh, which, which lessons were heeded 10 years later and which were not? Well, I think one of the big lessons from, from 2012, for a long time in relation to, to the run-up to 2012, looked very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was coming together very, very nicely. And, and you may recall that there was, however, controversy very shortly before the games were to launch when the, um, the main uh, security provider suddenly announced that they were short in staff. And they, they, they were no longer able to fulfill the criteria that they, they had signed up for. The problem was that they were recruiting people essentially to cover a, a six to eight week window. But the problem was many of them had found jobs between when they had originally been uh-huh. recruited to when they were actually going to start work. The uh, British Armed Forces were able to step in and plug the gap and did so very effectively. But it did highlight yeah. one of the problems you have when you are thinking about security for a one-time event. 
Yeah. It's only going to happen this one time. And as a result, when you're thinking in terms of employing staff on, on short-term temporary contracts, but you're hoping that those staff are going to fulfill some fairly important and sensitive roles, yeah. this is one of the challenges. But this is an issue for events like a World Cup or for yeah. future Olympics. You need to be able to manage this the short-term temporary nature of it in the UK, they're they're well known with other countries as well of having these poster campaigns saying, see it, say it, sorted. And I was wondering about the role of people like me and you, fans who are going to these games. What is our role in, in ensuring venue security? The UK does have this long tradition yeah. of uh, public information campaigns, yeah. uh, you know, pitched in and those lines that if you see something suspicious, please report it, don't yeah. ignore it. For me, I think it fulfills two functions. One is the it acts as a, an extra uh, barrier, if you want, in terms of if, if someone is trying to carry out an attack, this is something that, um, an additional obstacle for them. But at another level, it also acts in terms of uh, public reassurance, that yeah. if you have a sense that everybody is keeping an eye out on, on um, you know, for potential threats, then it also reassures you that you know, your security is going to be looked after. But it's not enough to have really good security. Uh, you have to talk about it and you have to show it. Yeah. So you can you can literally run exercises, not really because you think they're helping in terms of your preparation, but primarily from a PR point of yeah. view. You you want the media to record, you know, a, a, a training exercise involving the police, the military, yeah. emergency responders, not you know simply to kind of send a message: we're prepared, we're taking security seriously. Yeah. These are the type of resources that we have deployed. From my point of view. A big part of that was simply sending a message, we're taking security seriously. And if, you know, this is the stuff you know about, we're telling you there's also things you don't know about. Yeah. And if we're willing to do this much in public, what, what else is going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I would imagine that would act as a very big deterrent. I, I believe, I don't know who it was, but somebody interviewed um, members of the IRA who were in prison and uh, they had planned numerous attacks, but they didn't go through with them. And when the question came up, why did you not go through with them when you could have? And they said it was um, uh, what they were looking at when the security looked extremely professional. They just backed off. They said, no, we'll find yeah. it somewhere else. And so even if it's just theater, that in itself has has a huge impact. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is one of the things about Munich as well, back in 72. They only started planning that in July. You know, the attack happens in September. Oh, wow. And so you're kind of thinking that's only two months. That was no time at all for, for such a complicated attack. You know, they, they had a conversation in Rome and they said, you know, should we hit the Olympics or not? Uh, one of them was sent to Munich and he went up, he had a look around and he came back and he said, you know what, it is doable. Security is quite lax. Mm. And he was right. It was lax. Yeah. It was very lax. Uh, and this is one of the criticisms. So there is this um, you know, perception element that if your security looks tough, and, and this is kind of goes back to the point, it's not enough to have really good security. It yeah. needs to look yeah. good in order to have that deterrent impact. If, if your security doesn't isn't obvious to someone who's looking for it, it might, it might, in a sense, uh, fail in terms of deterring attack. And of course, that's one of the things you want to achieve. A, a big challenge, particularly in the current era, is the threat of lone actors. Mm -hmm. um, and, and certainly that tends to be yeah. the, the kind of uh, uh, criticism or observation made around them is that often yeah. they are much more difficult to detect um, compared to let's say, a group, uh, particularly a group which has a large presence and, yeah. and might already be under surveillance, and that a lone actor can fly under the radar. That's that's absolutely true. Another prominent attack um, against the Olympics was the Atlanta bombing, yeah. and that was carried out by a lone actor, yeah. uh, Eric Rudolph. Very different in terms of the, completely different in terms of the resources he had available to him compared to Black September. Um, but still was able to carry out a high impact 
uh, attack, which, which received an awful lot of attention. And final question, um, what are some of the questions which still need to be answered on delivering a safe and secure World Cup or Olympics? One, one of the ones for me is, is this challenge around it's a, a one-off short-term event mm. rather than um, uh, something that you're looking to protect over the long term. How do you bring enough security personnel and resources together for this four, six-week period mm. in, a, in a cost-effective but also a security effective manner. I think that's always going to be a challenge. Yeah. There's enormous pressure, I think, for these types of venues to protect the event and protect the experience. Mm. The, the consequence of media attention on them as well, I think is absolutely enormous. They're very, very conscious of the fact that the world is watching. Well, the, the one thing is, 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 I think the standard of security at these types of events in recent decades has just gotten better and mm. better and better. Um, these have now become hard targets. Uh, venue security tends to be very good. But the concern is probably what also happened in, in, in Paris in that attack. Uh, the Stade de France was too well protected. Yeah. They couldn't get in there. Yeah. Uh, and what, what ended up happening was that the really bad attacks happened at restaurants and nightclubs yeah. elsewhere, which were much more vulnerable. Yeah. And I think that displacement risk is, is certainly something to be concerned about. Um, I felt the same for 2012 going into it. I felt the venues were going to be safe. Mm. I really did. Um, I, I, I felt the security was going to be very good. Uh, the venues would be safe. My main worry, my main concern was what about displacement? What about an attack hitting a location yeah. outside of that security? And I think that's potentially one, one of the issues. How do you manage the displacement risk? The venues would probably be the safest place to be <laughs> there. But it, yeah, it's the, it's the displacement concern. Yeah. Andrew Silk, thank you very much for your time. Greatly appreciated. No worries. Happy to join you. The information and opinions presented in this podcast by the guest speakers are those of the speakers and do not imply endorsement or agreement by UNOCT, the United Nations, or any of its affiliated organizations.